0: Grade children are welcome to head to Children's Church at this time. You can read, head right out in the back. And just a reminder, if you've not registered your children, to do so at this time. Have your Bible with you. Would you go ahead and open up to the book of First John? We're going to be in First John chapter one this morning. If you're new to the Bible, I, here's an easy way to find it. Um, if you go to the very last book of the Bible, it's the book of Revelation. Uh, and then you begin to flip, just flip a few pages to the left from the book of Revelation, you'll find, well first you might find 3 John on one page, then you might find 2 John on another page, and then you'll find 1 John, which has a few more pages to it. Not many more, but a few more. And so, 1 John, and of course you can use your table of contents if you want, don't be shy about that. Um, And again, if you're new to the Bible, just want to make sure you know, we're not talking about the Gospel of John, which you would find closer to the middle of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's not the John we're referring to. There's a letter towards the back, 1 John. And uh, we're going to begin a new sermon series today, a new study in the book of 1 John. And then uh, we'll spend a Sunday each on 2 John and 3 John as well uh, as we get uh, closer to the end of it. So I encourage you to have your Bible open with you today and uh, take a few notes as we begin this journey in 1 John. Here's a question for you. If you knew that your time on earth was coming to a close in the immediate future, and you wanted to leave a message for your family and friends that would guide them in their living after you were gone, what would that message entail? This is not a message to reassure them of your love for them. There would be some of that in there, I'm sure. But this is advice, it is guidance, ways they should live in your absence. What would you put in that sort of a message, that sort of letter? Uh, You might give them spiritual advice. Uh, You might give them relational advice. You might give them financial advice. There's any number of things you might say, like, this is what's most important. When I'm gone, this is how I want you to live your lives. Well, the Christian church faced a similar situation near the end of the first century. The apostles were the most important voices in the church in the decades after Jesus ascended to heaven. But one by one, the apostles were dying, as all people do. And by the time we get to the end of the first century, close to the end of the first century, the time in which we believe this letter, 1 John was written, it's quite possible that John is the very last of the apostles. And the big question John is addressing with this letter and others is, how will the church move forward after the apostles are gone? You see, the church has options. They have this body of teaching that's come from the apostles. What will they do with that? One option is, well, they could reject it. Well, that's That's old stuff. That's from a bygone time. We're we're going to move forward in a different direction. So they could reject it outright. Or they could mix it with other popular teachings of the day. Oh, the apostles' teaching is good, but it falls short in light of what modern man now believes and understands. So we'll mix some of this with some of that, and we'll just get this sort of patchwork belief system. Or the other option is this. The church could hold firmly to what the apostles taught about Jesus and about eternal life and about the church. And for sure, that's what John desires. When he thinks about the church after he's gone, the church after the apostles are gone, he wants the church and he wants believers to hold firmly to the apostles' message about Jesus Christ. And so we have the book of the Bible called 1 John. This was written so that the church would know how to live in a post-apostolic age or in that time after the apostles. And John's message is consistent throughout. He is pleading with the church to hold firmly to the apostles' message about Jesus. In this way, it's an incredibly contemporary book of the Bible. I'm not sure what book of the Bible is not contemporary. That's, just, that's lazy man's scholarship to say, this has a lot to say to us today. Well, of course it does. It's the Bible. But 1 John especially speaks to a church in a post-apostolic age with all these competing truth claims. And it speaks to us about holding firmly to the message of Jesus Christ that we have from the apostles. And so this was made for 2021. It's made for us today. Now, before we dive into our study, I want to answer four quick questions that might help frame our understanding of 1 John better to begin with. So first question is this, who are the apostles? I don't want to take for granted that we're all on the same page with this, and so if this is elementary to you, um, that's Okay. But who are the apostles? Who are we speaking of when we talk about the apostles? We're speaking of those first 11 disciples, excluding Judas, who betrayed Jesus, but those 11 plus the apostle Paul, all who had firsthand experiences with Jesus and received a special commission from Jesus to, and special authority to propagate the gospel and establish the church. All right, so, the, not everyone is apostles, not everyone who had a first-hand experience with Jesus is an apostle. These 12 who received special authority from Jesus himself and a special commission to propagate the gospel. Those are the apostles. Here's the second question. Do we still have apostles today? And the answer is no. We don't have apostles today. Now, to be sure, uh, there are people in different faith traditions that might take on the title apostle. Uh, and I find that improper. I think it is very much in error, very inappropriate, uh, because they're taking a title without the authority. That title and that special authority uh, was only found in these original twelve. Here's a third question. Why does John want the church to hold on to the apostolic message about Jesus? Why doesn't John just say, hold to the teachings of Jesus? If we think about it, it seems like John's setting up a contest here between what Jesus said and what the apostles said. And if, it's, if i got a choice there, I just, I just want what Jesus said. I don't want to go with what the apostles said. I just want to go with what Jesus said. So what's John doing here? Why does it seem like he makes such a big deal about the apostles' teaching? Well, John is not setting up a contest between the words of Jesus and the words of the apostles. We have to remember that the recorded words of Jesus that we possess come from the apostles. Jesus didn't write anything. Everything we have that we know he said, it comes from the apostles whom Jesus commissioned to deliver this word and this message to us. So the New Testament is the apostolic word about Jesus. It's composed of books, writings that were composed by apostles themselves, people like Matthew, or John, or Paul, or Peter, or composed by people who had direct access to the Apostles, people like Mark or Luke. The only anomaly in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews. We don't know with confidence who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the church from its earliest days recognized that the message of the book of Hebrews aligned with the apostles' message about Jesus, and it possessed this unique special authority from God. And so it's been included in the canon of Scripture. So the New Testament is the apostolic message about Jesus Christ. We don't have anything of Jesus that exists separate from the apostolic message. And so John is not saying what the apostles say about Jesus is more important than what Jesus said about himself. What we hear Jesus say about himself is what the apostles have given us themselves. So these pages are the very apostolic message about Jesus Christ. All that we know of the gospel, of the church, of the indwelling God, the Holy Spirit, of the end of all things, all that we know comes from the apostles' message to us in this written form. Fourth and final question that might help our study. Who's who is John writing to? Who's his audience in this letter? Well, we don't know the specific address. We don't know exactly who he's writing to, but we know this, he's writing to believers. He's writing to believers who are part of a local church. And we think that maybe maybe John it, this 1st John is called an epistle or a letter, but it's not a letter in the formal sense. What I mean by that is it doesn't start with your normal letter material. Dear so-and-so, how are you? Whatever. Those types of things that were present in first century letters are are not present in this. So it could be that he didn't write this as a letter to be sent to a church far away, but it's a document he wrote for those people he was living with and he was pastoring and guiding uh, right in his own neighborhood. Um, So that's who John writes for. He writes for Christians in a local church uh, he writes for us for christians who are living in a time with competing truth messages in a time after the apostles are gone in a time when it's vital for us to hold on to the truth of jesus christ so the big question then is why should we believe the apostolic message about jesus Why why is it trustworthy? That's how John opens this letter here in just a moment. He, He anchors himself in an argument for the trustworthiness of his message. Why would we believe what John has to say? When we are modern people with incredible technology, we've seen so much, we put a man on the moon, we've done all these things. Why would we still hold to this very ancient, very old message that comes under such criticism? and intense heat on a regular basis, John gives us two reasons why you and I should hold firmly to the apostles' message about Jesus Christ. But when we finish this morning, I want you to have more confidence in the Word of God. I want you to believe it without embarrassment, without qualification. Know that this is God's Word to you, and it's the Word that changes lives. I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. These opening words, John is compelling you to believe what he has to say. And he builds an argument as to why his message, the apostolic message, is the trustworthy message about Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ. And so why is this message trustworthy? John gives us two reasons this morning. The first reason is this. It's the message from God that changes lives. Why should I believe what John has to say about Jesus? Because it's the message from God that changes lives in order to establish the trustworthiness of his message in the first two verses here, John calls to the front three witnesses to testify on his behalf. John, why should we listen to you? I've got these these witnesses that will testify and tell you that what I'm sharing with you is the truth, and it is trustworthy. What are those three witnesses? Well, he begins verse 1 with this familiar phrase, what was from the beginning? that word beginning it's an important bible word isn't it can you think of another place in the new testament where that word opens a book of the bible well if you were to think to the gospel of john chapter 1 verse 1 how does that book of the bible begin in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god so john john's got a way of starting letters with really important words because the word beginning is not just important in 1 John, and it's not just important in the Gospel of John. Where else does that word first show up? It shows up in the beginning. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So is it possible that John just picked a common word that got used back in Genesis? It's possible. It's not likely. He writes with intentionality. He writes with purpose. He's delivering a message. And what he's saying to us by using this phrase to open his letter is this message that I'm giving you is the same message from the beginning of all things. Its origin is not with me. It didn't even just come to earth at the time of Jesus, it has been here since the beginning of creation itself. The message I'm delivering, the message I want you to believe and trust and hold firm to in the face of every criticism, every persecution, every sorrow, is the message of the Bible itself. It's not something new that supersedes the Old Testament or replaces the Old Testament. It is the one consistent gospel message that God ordained since the very beginning. John's message to us about Jesus is the historic, long existing narrative that God is redeeming his people through his son Jesus Christ. From the beginning, that's where John's message begins. It begins long before John, long before me. It has longevity. And it has this weight to it, the weight of the Word of God. His message is the Bible itself. Next, John argues the trustworthiness of his case by pointing us to his personal experience. Uh, Look at the tactile language he uses in verse 1. Let's pick it out together. He says, what was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life verse 2 that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the father and was revealed to us he uses this very tactile language he doesn't just say this is what we've heard or this is what we decided in committee to get we had an executive session and and we said here's what we agree we're going to say about jesus no he says this is what i And my fellow apostles, we've seen, heard, touched, experienced. When he says we touched it, don't you have this vision of Thomas the doubter in the room with Jesus after his resurrection? I won't believe it until I see it, until I touch the wounds with my own hands. And Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, come and touch. We've seen it. We've heard it. We touched it. This message has intersected with our lives. That word of life has transformed me. So there's a key question. What is this thing that they've seen and heard and touched? Your first answer might be, well, it's it's Jesus. And that wouldn't be incorrect. To answer Jesus to any question is almost always right. But in in this instance, um, there's a little bit of nerdy scholarly debate. Uh, If you were to look at your translation of the Bible, I don't know what translation you're working with, but um, if you have a King James, or if you have a new King James, or if you have a new international version, you'll find that your Bible, at the end of verse 1, it capitalizes the word, word, in the phrase word of life. That word of life, that's what they've heard, seen, touched, declare. The word of life. So it's capitalized in those translations of Scripture. If you have an English Standard Version, or if you have the one that I'm reading from this morning, Christian Standard Bible, they do not capitalize the word, word. So if it's capitalized, it seems to be a reference to Jesus himself. If it's not capitalized, it seems to be a reference to something else. What's the something else? Well, it's not not Jesus. It's not that these Bibles are saying this is not a reference to Jesus, but I take them to be saying this is a reference Not just to Jesus the person, but the entirety of his ministry and message. That word of life is a message. And for sure, that Jesus is the word who took on flesh. It's right to describe him that way. But in this instance, I I find John to be describing the entirety of the message of Jesus. After all, that's the, the main thrust of this entire letter is this trustworthy message that we should anchor our lives in. And that message is the message from Jesus, about Jesus. Uh, There's biblical precedent for understanding the word, word of life, as the message about Jesus, not just Jesus himself, the person. And that precedence comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 68. Uh, Jesus has just given this really difficult teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And all these people are turned off by it, and they, they leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave me too? And you remember how Peter responded to Jesus at that question? He said, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Wouldn't that make a great song? Wouldn't it have been awesome if we had just sung that line just about 10 minutes ago? Wow! You have the words of eternal life. That word of eternal life is what they've seen, heard, touched, declare. They've interacted with it. John is saying, I have had personal, a personal encounter with this. This word of life has come to me. I was dead and now I'm alive because of this word of eternal life. Uh, it, he calls to the witness stand his own personal experience. He's not sharing with us philosophies that he's dreamed up. Ideas that he thinks should be good for the church. He's saying, I've experienced this myself. My life has been transformed by the message of Jesus Christ. And this is one reason why this message is trustworthy. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've beheld it. I've been transformed by it. A final witness that John brings to his defense as to the trustworthiness of his message is God himself. In verse 2, he tells us that that life, the word of life, was revealed. Revealed is our key word here. We've seen it. We testify. We declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed. There it is again, revealed to us. Twice in verse 2, he uses the word revealed. Again, he didn't create this. He and his friends didn't invent this story. It was revealed. And how was it revealed? Well, this is very important. Anytime the apostles are defending their authority and their message, they, always, they never point to themselves. They always point to God. God's the one who gave us this. This message is from the Father. It's not from us. We're delivering to you the message that God gave to us. We're not changing it. We're not adapting it. God gave this message to us, and we are giving it to you. That message was revealed. Not written not invented by them. It was revealed by God. And what we have written is that which God has revealed. And so he wants to make sure we understand the origins of his message, that message of the word of life. The origin is from God. God revealed it. All right. Now we get to push back on John. Let's get a little rough with him. John, why should we believe you? With all the competing messages in this world, what is it that makes your message believable? Why should we hold firm to what you have to say about anything? And John would say this, he's told us in verses 1 and 2 Well, my message is the one consistent story of the entire Bible, it's as old as creation itself. What's more, I've encountered this word of life firsthand, and my life's been transformed. And what I have to say is not my own invention. God has given it to me. In other words, I have the witness of Scripture, the witness of my personal experience, and the witness of God Himself to testify that my message is true. And I find that convincing, that this is not the invention of God people in a smoke-filled room who are just vying for power among men. This is the message from God about Jesus Christ that transforms our lives when we believe. Why should I trust this exclusively? Why should I hold to this word in, in, in a sea of competing truth messages? Because it's the word of the Bible. It's the message that transforms lives. It's the message from God himself. That's the message I want to attach my life to. So why should we believe what John has to say? It's the message from God that changes lives. Second reason to believe this word, to find it trustworthy, is because it's the message of God that creates a joyful family. It's the message of God that creates a joyful family. It isn't until we get to verse 3 that John finally uses a verb that matters. Sometimes the way John writes is really weird. It's not the way you and I would have written this letter. But we get to verse 3 and listen to what he says. He says, what we have seen and heard we also declare to you. There's your key verb, the word declare. So we declare this to you so that you may have, what's the reason for declaring it? So you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If if you want to know the Father, if you want to be connected to the Son, then the apostolic message is the the avenue through which that happens. The way we understand what faith is and how salvation works comes through this message. So if you want fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and Son, this is the message that's going to lead you that way. In verse 4, he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's, he's writing to woo his people and to hold his people to the message about Jesus Christ. And in doing that, that makes my joy complete. When you walk with Christ as the Lord of your life. Now, the word fellowship in verse 3 is a super important word. And it colors our understanding of these two verses. So in Greek, the word for fellowship here is the word koinonia. It might be a word that you've heard before, you're familiar with. Koinonia speaks of sharing in common something that is significant and important. It it describes the joy and oneness in a group of people who are unified regarding something that really matters. You share common values, common beliefs, common goals you love the same things, you pursue a common agenda. And so when John says he wants his readers to have fellowship with him, well, he certainly means it first and foremost in a salvation sense. It's right for us to understand it that way, that those who have fellowship with John are, are those who receive the apostolic gospel message They have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, turned from their sin, their faith is in Christ, eternal life is theirs, abundant life is theirs, and that's how they have fellowship, this koinonia. This is more than just being friends or acquaintances, this is like life attached to life. This koinonia happens when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. So, without a doubt... What John means by fellowship here, first and foremost, is the description of a salvation relationship. When Jesus becomes our Savior, God becomes our Father. And unlike every other religion in the world, Christianity brings us into intimate relationship with a God who is both Savior and Father. He's a perfect Savior. He's a perfect Heavenly Father. But that fellowship doesn't just remain between you and your Savior, God. That fellowship also extends to the people who share in that experience with you. Our koinonia, our fellowship, is with Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And it is also especially with each other. So in addition to a heavenly father, you also get a whole bunch of brothers and sisters thrown in. And the fellowship that exists among believers, among followers of Jesus, is a deep enrich fellowship. It's the fellowship of family that transcends every barrier that the history of mankind has put up to separate us. Every barrier. We know that we have more in common with believers who speak a different language and live in a different country than we do with those who do not believe and yet might live right next door. That's not to say Our neighbors are unimportant, or we get to be indifferent to them. That's not it at all. But my koinonia, my fellowship, my union with brothers and sisters is marked first and foremost by our shared faith in Jesus Christ. I had an opportunity once to see this played out in real life. And maybe I've told this story before. If so, act like it's the first time. And the next time I tell it, act like that will be the first time as well. Uh, But several, several years ago, uh, my wife Melissa and I had the opportunity to go tour the Holy Land. It was a life-changing trip, really remarkable. Uh, And one of the stops on our trip was at this baptismal site at the Jordan River. Uh, Large complex, tons of people. Just every tour bus from under the sun was at this place and if you wanted to get into the water like you could get in it to be baptized do whatever you had to pay money and you bought these white paper robes that lasted just the duration (laughs) of your dip in the water and then you threw them away and you went on about your business but here we are at at this river and um there's just there's people everywhere and they're all dressed in in these white robes and uh Not many of them are speaking English. In fact, very, very few of them are speaking English. Like Every language under the sun is being spoken at this location. But then all of a sudden, one person started to sing Amazing Grace, but not in English. But it was, of course, recognizable. We know that song. And then, without prompting, everyone else joined in and started singing Amazing Grace in their own language. Same song. Same message, different languages. That was, that's koinonia. That, that's a fellowship around Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. We don't know each other's names. We couldn't say three words to each other that we understood on that day, but we shared that song with one another. And that's what heaven's going to be like. Heaven's going to be a lot less like this room and a lot more like that river people of every tribe and tongue and nation, together, one voice, exalting Jesus Christ, the crucified lamb. It's going to be amazing. That's the stuff that makes joy complete. You want to know why I'm all in on the church these days? As those who will model and proclaim a better way than racism and relational division and all kinds of brokenness and war and conflict between people. You know why I'm all in on the church for that? Because we have this koinonia. We have this fellowship with each other. What we have is not man-made. It's God-given, and it's not perfect because we're here. We're good at messing things up, but we have a heavenly Father who's guiding us and helping us and bringing us together. Uh, I think what the world lacks, what the world is desperate for, is what you and I Enjoy in, in fellowship with the Father and the Son and each other. I believe in this message that Christ has given us and he's working out among us. And that's why this is a trustworthy message from John. It's the message of God that creates a joyful family. No one else and no thing else can produce this. So, here at the beginning of our study of 1 John, we are, we're urged to trust John's message because it's the message from God that gives eternal life. It's the message from God that creates a spiritual family. And from the outset of this study, you're put in a position where you have to choose, will I trust or will I not trust? Will I believe this word or will I not believe this word? And look, you don't have to believe it. You have other options. Let me give you three other options you might choose to follow rather than The apostolic message about Jesus Christ well you can choose to trust other messages from outside the gospel messages from the world there's many to choose from and they vacillate in popularity today this one thing is popular tomorrow this other message will be popular and the benefit could be that they might not even require you to reject Christianity. You could still do the Christian thing and then mix in this outside practice, belief system, whatever the thing is. One example, one that's wildly popular right now, is New Age practices. And so people are all in on the healing power of crystals. And I'm going to burn sage to make this room a curse-free place. And I'm going to go see a, a, a Reiki healer to align my chakras and get my... And look, you can do that and still come to church and, and feel like you're doing everything okay. You can do that if you want, but it's not biblical. and It doesn't give life. It doesn't lead to life. But you can do it if that's what you want to do. Another option is this. You... You can choose to trust distorted messages from within the church. Here's where it gets really tricky. Like when, when we think about alternative truth claims, we're, we're thinking of like people on the fringes, people on the outside. But what we'll find in our study of 1 John is that uh, the terrorizer of the church came from within the church. They mutilated the gospel message of Christ in using familiar language, religious language, and things that appealed to the affections of people. They led people astray. So you can do that. You Just make Jesus subservient to whatever your other agendas are. Just slap some Christianese on that thing that you think is way more important and go for it. And look, that junk sells books like crazy. And that book will fill an arena with people who will come and listen to someone speak. And that junk will feel Christian, but it's still junk. But you can believe that if you want. You can. Well, there's another option. You, you could choose to trust yourself. Messages from outside, bah. Messages from inside, bah. Myself. That's what we can trust, and you can look to yourself to find truth within, and your truth will be determined by the life choices that just make you happiest. That's your standard for everything. What makes me the happiest, what appeals to my flesh the most right now, I'm going to do that thing. Now, granted, we are a hodgepodge of hypocrisy and brokenness and guilt, but you can trust yourself if you want to, or we can trust the message of the word of eternal life the one that entered our creation, entered our brokenness to redeem and rescue us. We can anchor our lives to Jesus Christ in the word about him from the apostles. And how can you know you're doing that? The, John has argued why you should. How can I know I'm doing that? I'll give you two very quick answers as to how you can actively trust in this message First, you're going to actively trust in the message of the word of life through fellowship with other believers. Listen to how the early church was described in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they devote themselves to this teaching, and then they devote themselves to each other as a result. And so, I want to encourage you to show your active trust in the Word of God by engaging with your brothers and sisters in the faith. That might be a little challenging these days, um, what with the need to be safe and all of that, but who can you share life with? Who can you make a story with? Who can you pray with? Who can you... Eat with, drink coffee with. Who, who is that brother or sister that you can get into the word together? Who can you invest in? If you're a Christian with a lot of miles on the odometer, who can you begin to pour yourself into? If you're a Christian with not many miles on the odometer, who's the Christian you can learn from and be mentored by? Who's the relationship, the brother or sister in Christ that you're engaging with? That's how you actively trust this message, is through fellowship with other believers. The second way is this, is through fellowship with Jesus. And do you know what that looks like? Listen to the words of Jesus from John 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples this, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. That intimacy we have with our Savior one of the ways it's evidenced is through trusting him in the mundane little things of life or the big things, the scary things of life. Ask and you will receive. Does that mean anything I ask for Jesus is going to give? No, he's your heavenly father and not your heavenly um, vending machine. He's going to give you a no and he's going to give you a wait and he's going to give you a yes. But he loves you. He will give you the best thing. And you show your trust, your fellowship with him by asking And he will answer, and you'll receive that answer, and your joy will be complete. Are you asking? Are you receiving? That's what this fellowship looks like. So Christian, in the midst of so many messages competing against the gospel, messages that denigrate the gospel, hold firm to the apostolic message about Jesus. Hold firm to it, not just in principle, but by active trust in Jesus So that you would ask, you would receive, and you'd be filled with joy. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, have you evaluated your truth claims? Have you properly evaluated the claims of the Bible? That can be a long discussion. It can be a long road. But it's a commitment that I would be willing to make to you if you wanted to sit and get into the Word of God together and understand these things better. It is worth it for you to say, okay, if this, if this book claims that its, its truth is as old as creation, that God himself has given it to us, I would want to search that out. I'd want to know, is this trustworthy? Is this true? Can I put my life on this word? And you can, and it promises you this, that since Christ died in your place for your, your sin, if you will put your trust in him, you're, you'll be changed forever. The word of eternal life will transform you You will be a child of God, and he will be your heavenly father forever and ever. And I promise you, that is what would make your joy complete. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word to us, the word that you revealed and the word that has been seen and heard and touched and declared. It's a word that we ourselves have been impacted by. I'm grateful that I'm in a room this morning full of brothers and sisters, those with whom I share fellowship in the name of Jesus Christ. And though we come from so many backgrounds and we look different and we live different, we think different, we've got this thing that binds us above everything else. It's our trust in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. So God, I pray that our church, South Shore Baptist Church, would have this flavor about it this flavor of oneness, this koinonia, fellowship, a true commitment to one another out of our experience with the gospel. God, I pray that out of that, other people would know that we are your disciples and those on the outside would be drawn to the gospel because of what they see in the way you've transformed our lives. I pray for my friends in here that are searching, that are asking questions, that have serious objections. Lord, lead them in the pursuit of truth, and I pray that you would reveal it to them. Don't let them discover it. God, show it yourself so that they would know you to be faithful, gracious, and merciful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.